Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Searching for Billy tells the story of a Chinese baby girl given up for adoption in a basket in Changsha in 1916 to an Englishman working for China's post office. That little girl would be educated in Shanghai and then in 1935 start work at a cultural magazine and then in radio and media for the mayor of Shanghai as war loomed. The Billy in the title is the mother of journalist Ian Gill. For the first many, many years of my life, she was just my mother. She was quite strict in the old-fashioned Chinese way. What, about education? No, mainly it was about my hair and my eating, my table manners. So it wasn't really until I met the people that she introduced me to from her past, in other words, uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong, and I saw how they treated her. They, they treated her with great respect and affection. So I thought, well, you know, maybe she's much more than a mother. It's difficult to perceive how the outside world sees somebody. But that was the start of it. Your mum goes through, as we'll, we'll discover, she's brought up in China. She's also at the time of both Sino-Japanese War and then Civil War. She then is going to be interned in Stanley. She loses her first son whilst in Stanley internment camp. So she's going to have all of this trauma and upheaval going on in her life. But as a child, were you aware of any of this? Well, not really. Because of her experiences in Hong Kong and Shanghai, she wanted to protect me, her Eurasian son, from some of the bad experiences she'd been through. And uh, she always dreamed, because her father, the man who adopted her, was English, she always dreamed of me becoming an English gentleman. A futile dream, unfortunately. When she joined the UN, which gave her an educational allowance, she had the chance to enroll me in a British boarding school. Of course, I spent 10 years in boarding school, and then I became, you know, in my mind, quite British and started my career there and so forth. And it wasn't really till 1975 when we met in Hong Kong and she decided to unveil the curtain, so to speak, on her past and she introduced me to, remarkably, she still had Eurasian friends from the Shanghai Public School here and friends she'd met in Hong Kong earlier. And then she took me to uh, Taipei and she, you know, she introduced me to the people she'd worked with before the war in Shanghai. I'd never met this kind of person before. Yeah. And uh, her story was kind of my story. It explained uh, her to me more. So I, that's how I became very interested in researching her life. This process of telling your mother's life, can we take it back to China? Well, the thing was, you know, my mother and I actually finished a draft of her book in 2002. But we decided to shelve it because we thought we could improve it. And then after she died, all this stuff came out of the internet. She had never known where her father had been born. He always talked of Southampton and she thought he'd been born in Southampton. And her grandparents, she thought they'd come out with the, the China Inland Mission and were missionaries. Well, the internet revealed, you know, quite a different story. And she never mentioned Shei Fu. Her father never mentioned Shefu, which is extraordinary. So all this stuff came out after she had passed away and opened up whole new vistas, really, to her story. 
So Shefu, your so your great grandfather, what does he work as? Well, he came out here as a seaman uh, working for the P&O. He proposed to a woman back in Britain who had been recently widowed, and she got on a ship and came out and joined him, and they got married. They went on to uh, establish this hotel in Shefu, and I realized it was all her idea because she had managed this hotel in Southampton. She had this idea that she would go out and somehow create her own hotel that was geared for women because all these hotels were, you know, were for men. And so she came out and married Edward. Now, he was working for the P&O, and eventually after they married, he got a land job. So they're based in Hong Kong. That's where they got married. And, of course, they had agents in all the China coast ports, plus the Hong Kong bank branches. And I'm pretty certain that in 1873, they heard about this hotel in Sheifu, which was in distress, that in this huge storm that had virtually dismantled the hotel, I'm pretty sure they made an offer because very, very quickly they packed their bags and left for Shefu with these very, very young children. And that's how it started. So that's how your ancestors end up in China. So that's the hotel in Shefu. And did it take off? Yes. I mean, I went there and I was astounded because it's a mile from the settlement. You know? So the building still exists? No, not the original building, but another hotel is on the same oh, spot. Okay. So you could have stayed there? I could have stayed, but it wasn't the original. Yeah. And I had re my own reason for staying in the, in the old settlement, which is still well preserved, by the way. Yeah, it's quite incredible, some of these treaty ports or ex-treaty ports. So that's how your great-grandfather and great-grandmother come out of England, onto Hong Kong and then on to Shefu. I had a lot of trouble discovering the story of my great-grandparents. And actually, it was a Hong Kong guy, Henry Ching, who was the son of Harry Ching, the former South China Morning Post editor. He said, why don't you try this Carl Smith collection? So I applied, and lo and behold, I had a little card, and there was his name, Edward Newman, Marianne Newman, and the three kids. And then right at the bottom of the card, there was something that completely threw me. It just said, Shefu Hotel. So that sent you on a journey, then? That sent me on a journey. I'd never heard of Shefu, but historian Philip Cracknell, he put me on to Robert Neild and Nick Kitto, and I contacted them. And lo and behold, they'd recently come out from another trip to Shefu. Yes. They sent me a wealth of information. Because Robert Neild wrote, uh, well, he's written two books on, on the treaty ports of China, and Nicholas Kitto is also was his photographer. But he actually has done a beautiful, more like a coffee table book on these treaty port buildings. So you were able to find out more about Shefu. Go and go and visit yourself. So this is your great grandparents who moved from Hong Kong to Shefu. They've got young children. They have a son, Frank. That's right. Now, Frank, my mother thought he'd been born in Southampton. In fact, he'd been born in Hong Kong very soon before they left for Shefu. So he was brought up in this hotel by an armor and by the Chinese staff around him. He spoke better Chinese than English at the beginning, and he ended up completely fluent. But not just fluent, he, he was friends with them. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he, he empathized with them. He liked them. He admired them. And that was very, very unusual in those days. And then 
because he would buy the beach, they went rowing a lot. And he became a fantastic rower. And when he got to about 19, the local branch of the, you know, the Shefu Maritime Customs, they had these rowing events, right? And they saw this young muscle man. And so he was persuaded to join the China Maritime Customs in Shefu. He joined the Maritime Customs in Shefu in the early 1890s as a watcher and then uh, quickly rose up. And uh, What did a watcher do? They sort of scanned the horizon for ships coming in and then I think part of their duty was go on board the ships and go out and visit these ships to see if they were smuggling anything. So it was the lowest rung. Frank Newman would continue to work for the Chinese Maritime Customs before switching to the relatively new post office in China, a job which took him around the country. His wife was Chinese, which was unusual for the times. They would end up with three daughters, one of whom was Ian's mother, a Chinese baby handed over in a basket in Changsha. He's by now acting postal commissioner, so they finally promoted him. His wife is a bit lonely. He decides she's always wanted a Chinese baby because if you have a Eurasian baby in those days as a Chinese woman, you also got disapproving looks from your fellow Chinese. And so he adopted my mother. And one day, so uh, my mother's older sister told me, a man uh, carrying a basket arrived at their front door and it was Billy, who uh, was from a Shangsha family. And, of course, Mei Lan, or Mama, as my mother called her, you know, was absolutely thrilled and delighted that she had her own baby, whom she would, I'm sure, pass off as her own, because they never told my mother that she was adopted. They never told your mother they that she was adopted? They never told my mother that she was adopted, but she was brought up with such love and care that she never considered anybody else except Mama to be her real parent. So that's in Changsha, so she's a baby brought in a basket to start her life with the Newman family. They had one Eurasian child, Jessie, the oldest child, and then they adopted a girl they called Dolly. Not content with that, in 1916, he adopts Billy, so he's now got a family of three, but then he does something even more remarkable. He knows that Changsha has been the scene of a civil war and it's not exactly the safest place, but he also wants to bring his children up in a safe place where they can get a good education. And so he sends them to Shanghai and he wants them to get the best out of life. He decided to send all three girls to school in Shanghai. And my mother went to the, the best English-speaking schools and became English. I mean, it was very extraordinary. This school had very good independent women brought out from England, and they were tremendous role models. They were for the children of the merchants of the international settlement taught by these independent-minded British women, English women. So your mum at that time is known as Mary Lou? That's right. She, she, that was her name, and she kept that name for a very long time. And then she joined this magazine. Uh, well, she joined Reuters first after school, and then she joined this uh, cultural magazine called Tianxia. And then came the war. Japan attacked Shanghai, and uh, she was working for the magazine. But, you know, the magazine had very close connections with both the Shanghai government and uh, the British embassy because it was an international magazine, and they relied on Western writers as well as Chinese scholars. The mayor of Shanghai needed extra staff because all these foreign correspondents were coming in to cover this war. 
the editor of Tiense volunteered my mother, who spoke fluent English, had Reuters experience, and so she joined the mayor of Shanghai as his aide. And at first, she was just taking verbatim notes of these press conferences and mingling with the journalists afterwards to brief them. And then one day he turned to her and said, "Oh, listen, our regular Chinese broadcaster on this radio station, which is an English language station, has taken ill. Well, I want you to go and take his place." And she said, "Sorry, I, I, I don't quite understand what you mean." She says, "You know." You'll do the job. Don't worry. So after this, you finish tonight. Use my car. They'll take you to this radio station, and you just broadcast the news. You now, oh, what a transition for her! Well, I mean, she was completely flabbergasted. She, she was put into this black limousine, driven off to this makeshift radio station because they had to keep changing. They didn't want the Japanese to know、yes. where they were.、And、the red light came on. Oh, and before that, he had said to her, "Listen, you've got to have a name." So she's Mary Lou Newman at this、she's、point. Mary Lou Newman, and then.、Uh, He says, "Let's give you a name." And at the time, there was an actress,、uh, Billy Dove, who was、uh, very popular. And he said, "Okay, we're going to call you Billy Lee." And so, you know, when the red light came on in the studio, she said, "Oh, well, this is Billy Lee," <laughs> and off she went. And、uh, at the end, the mayor rang up. He said, "Great job. You keep it." So she did that job every night. It was the official government radio station. You chatted with your mum about certain things and discovering things about more subsequently about your mum's life. You filled out areas that she didn't actually know during her life. But things like that—is this you sitting with your mum over tea and and she's telling you all about this? Well, she she told me that story herself. Yeah, she she did make notes because when I travelled and was living apart on the other side of the world, she sat down and she dictated her story into a tape recorder, which was transcribed. That was the basic draft we used. The story of the broadcaster. I mean, so you had all these listeners listening to this Chinese woman, Billy Lee, but delivering the news in this very cultured English accent, and a lot of the listeners were very curious, especially the young students. And they would write to her and ask if they could meet her. Now, while Billy Lee is, or Mary Lou Newman is now establishing her career in Shanghai, where's the rest of the Newman family at this point? By this time, Billy is still living with Mama in in Shanghai, but Dad has has left the family. He actually found out later he took up with a, a, a Russian girl. Oh,、uh, Frank Newman. Frank Newman took up with a Russian girl. He did intend to maintain both families. In in those days, you didn't divorce one and, and take on another. You added. So he added the Russian girl, and of course he had to set her up in a different place. But it was never his intention not to continue supporting his his Chinese family, and he did. He put my mother through Shanghai Public School. So she's there. We're into you know 1937. The Japanese invade. She's in Shanghai. So we've described how your mother would end up renaming herself or getting renamed as Billy Lee in order to be on the radio. She's got experience working with Reuters. In those years in Shanghai, or just before when she's working also for that cultural magazine, tell me about some of the people that she's meeting at around that era. She gets this break by being offered a job with Tianxia. As office manager, and Tianxia was. Oh, Tianxia was this、uh, international English language cultural magazine, and it was intended to bridge Western and Eastern cultures. It had Western writers and Chinese scholars, and it was staffed by Chinese scholars. 
my mother started working them from scratch. The, the more work we gave her and the more competently she did, her work duties expanded. It eventually included, you know, cajoling the uh, writers to produce their copy, proofreading it, taking it to the printer, etc. Now, soon after she started, this American writer, Emily Hahn, known to her friends as Mickey Hahn, arrived in Shanghai on a world tour with her sister. She had intended to stay only a few days, but she instantly fell in love with the city and decided to stay a long time. And she started working, of course, as well as working as a freelance for the New Yorker. She started working for the North China Daily News. She started looking around for other avenues of work. And she came across Tianxian, and she wanted to meet the people. You know, she liked the magazine. She wanted to contribute. She did contribute. And when she arrives in the office, she sees this young girl there. Now, she's young. She's 10 years younger than Mickey, but she seems to know everything. You know, she's a very sharp, alert girl. And she seemed to know important things, like where do you get a permanent wave in Shanghai? <laughs> so these two women, despite their age, their age gap of 10 years, they became very quickly firm friends. And Billy had never met a person like Mickey, independent woman, and she didn't seem to give a damn about what anybody said to her. She was certainly, she certainly did whatever she wanted, yeah. including uh, having relationships with very well-known men, and she was soon, uh, as well as writing the news, she was the center of the gossip columns. And Billy just couldn't get over this woman who was so independent, was unknown uh, in her circles. And she was also a very wise woman. You know, she was way ahead of her time. And she would give Billy advice and things like this. And Billy, she became Billy's lifelong confidant. It lasted right until Mickey died. Interesting relationship. I mean, I think the fact that Billy has been, has always been in an international environment to a certain extent, and, and now in Shanghai, and she meets Mickey Hahn, who, of course, was also, I mean, as you say, she worked for these different outlets, but she also wrote, she's a prolific writer, and they both later would would end up in Hong Kong. I quite like this idea of these two two women and their friendship. Yes, well, my mother uh, went to Hong Kong in 1937, and Mickey followed a bit later. Mickey was pursued by Charles Boxer, the English intelligence officer, who fell in love with her through her writing. He was also a scholar. So she quickly became again embroiled in scandal in Hong Kong. But she also had a project, a new writing project. She was going to write a book on the Song Sisters. And the Tianxia group who came with my mother, they were connected with the Song Sisters. So she resumed her friendships with the Tianxia group, with my mother, and she stayed with my mother. She, she went to cover the war also in Chongqing, and when she came to Hong Kong, she, she stayed with my mother. So your mother had moved down to Hong Kong because of the situation in Shanghai? The entire Tianxia staff fled Shanghai at the end of 1937 and moved the, the whole operation down to Hong Kong. And then they added another very important function. They became the Chinese government information office because the nationalist government were being pushed further and further back by the Japanese and ended up in Chongqing in the far west. And all the ports were in Japanese hands. They needed a voice outside, outside of China. And these scholars became the information office. But my mother was one of the very few who had, you know, any real kind of media experience. So she played a role there in helping foreign journalists again who arrived in Hong Kong to try and gain access into China. She helped them, you know, go into China and be met 
and being pressed towards to the front line and things like that. So she was in contact with all these guys, you know. And where did she live in Hong Kong? She lived in Happy Valley. So she comes over here at the end of 1937, working for this Chinese cultural magazine. But as you say, she, her roles always have another element to them in this time of war. What did she say to you about her impression of Hong Kong? I mean, Shanghai must have been quite, uh, despite the, the dramatic situation, must have been quite a hard city to leave. Well, it was, especially since uh, she left her mother there. Yes, Hong Kong was... Uh, a backwater compared to Shanghai, but on the other hand, you know she kind of liked seeing the the green hills around her, and uh, it was much quieter. But for her, life actually became busier. They had fled to Hong Kong because of the Sino-Japanese War, and although Hong Kong was quieter in many ways, her life got busier because all these correspondents came to Hong Kong. To try and cover the uh, the ongoing war between China and Japan, and, and interestingly, you know, in, in Hong Kong at that time, uh, the Chinese and the British tended to live very separate lives. But she occupied this this middle ground, where the Chinese information people, including her, interacted on equal terms with all these Western journalists. They were on the same level, so and inside the office, she was highly, highly valued by the staff. And by the media, but as soon as she stepped out of the office, she was just a, a Chinese girl on the street, frowned upon、uh, disapprovingly if she if she went into the grips or you know some other place where a lot of the、uh, snootier British women congregated. She had two sides of the coin: huge respect during the daytime, and less respect、uh, when she left the office. When your mother talked to you about that period of her life, basically coming down from Shanghai to Hong Kong, some of the people's attitudes, yes, but the fact that she's still relatively young at this point, did that, you know, the war situation? When she later would relate that to you, I mean, she's about to have some devastating experiences. But was there a sense of excitement about Shanghai and meeting all of these different people alongside? The bombings or the other terrible goings on that you have with the war. The dealing with the international people during peace and war in Shanghai was very exciting, but don't forget that the war came. There's only about a few months of the war before they all fled from 1937 until the war in 41. So she had four years、yes. of a really exciting life because her workload was immense. I don't know how she coped. It's interesting when you've got a mother talking to her son. And、um, you would later in the 1990s, your mum would return with you to Shanghai. But I think that's interesting. This, I mean, you've got a son who's a journalist, so you're a natural writer for for your mum's experiences. But at the same time, was she open about the loves in her life, that side of life? Was she open with you about that? Oh yes, she told me about her relationship in Hong Kong. She met this、uh, Irish army officer on the beach, and、uh, they got talking. And he pursued her for a year, and then she got pregnant, and they married. But she couldn't quite understand it. Having pursued her, his ardor suddenly dropped. And、uh, early in、uh, 1940, around about April, March, he said to her, "Look, Billy, my unit." Is being posted back to Britain. Don't follow me. 
I'm talking with Ian Gill about his book In Search of Billy, which is about his mother, but also it's not only her life, but it's also where she comes from in terms of the family that would adopt her in China. We've got a lot to tell in, in One Hong Kong Heritage, but I think you've done some great research, Ian, on your family and also, as I say, those aspects of history that they are navigating through. So from Shefu, then on to Shanghai, then on to Hong Kong. Your mum is working with these international correspondents. She's, she's uh, incredibly busy, as you say, in that period, 1937 to 1941. In December 1941, Japan invades Hong Kong. What happened with her then? Well, she remains in her flat. She goes to work. She's taking the tram on Hennessy Road, which still exists, I see. And she's on the way to the Hong Kong Bank, where they had their office, and she hears this thudding in the distance. And, of course, it's the beginning of the, of the war for Hong Kong. She stays in her flat for a while, but eventually she is evacuated to a billet. Because she had married Paddy, she was entitled to a billet as a British soldier's wife. So she was billeted at Peak Mansions. She was there through the fighting, and then everything went quiet after the surrender, and she leaves. She goes in search of, of uh, Mickey Hahn, actually, but Mickey Hahn is not there. She's at the hospital with Charles, who's been very badly wounded. But a neighbor recognizes Billy, the Armstrongs, and they take her in, and then she stays with them until they hear that the Japanese have asked all the uh, requested that all the foreign community assemble at Murray Parade Ground to be registered as prisoners of war and taken to their camps. Yes, so she ends up in Stanley civilian internment camp for the duration. With her, she has her young son, Brian, whose father is, is Paddy. Yes, yeah, so she goes into Stanley with her 18-month-old baby Brian. You know, some people ask, why didn't she just, because she was Chinese, why didn't she just walk across the border like others? But of course, she had a baby to look after. So that, you know, she, she decided to throw in her lot with the British, if you like. She took her armor with her. And the armor had looked after Brian from the time he was born, you know, because she was working. And so she was very happy to have uh, her armor still with her. But after a few weeks, they had a roll call and they had to produce papers. And of course, the armor didn't have any papers and uh, she was kicked out. So my mother suddenly, you know, apart from you know, losing her good friend, they were quite close. She suddenly had to learn how to change nappies and do all that stuff. She was terrified. But once she started looking after Brian, that was in a salve in a way, because it gave her a focus in life, a purpose to exist. But of course, in looking after a child under those circumstances, 24 hours a day is a strain. And the camp had nurses who acted as babysitters. It was a very good system. They went around and they relieved mothers of their duties for a while. And two nurses came and offered to take Brian down to Tweed Bay, which the Japanese had opened up as a beach where people could swim. And my mother was very grateful for this. And she'd taken up bridge and would become very good. So she went off to her bridge game. And then in the middle of the bridge game, you know, a man appeared at the door and said, Billy, just like that. And she, she knew something terrible, terrible had happened. What's happened? Is it, is it Brian? And he wouldn't answer her. 
he just said, you know, come with me. And they found that Brian had drowned in this little pool on the beach, a pool that people had used to rinse off their feet. And he had drowned. And, uh, of course, devastating under any circumstances, but especially when you've got no family support, nothing. Years later, so Brian is buried in the Stanley... Uh, yes, I've seen, I've seen his little grave there, yes. And so when, years later, when I met my mother in 1975, she took me to Brian's grave for the first time. And she turned around to me and said, you know, you were two sons rolled into one. And I didn't understand what she was talking about. Much, much later, she suddenly turned around to me one day and she said, you know, when Brian died, I was out of my mind and I yearned to fill the gap. When Brian had died, a fellow internee who had lived not far away and had been her friend anyway, he came down and spent a lot of time with her, to be with her and console her. He wrote a poem about Brian. He, he was a journalist and she was very moved by this poem. And he was a very, very kind guy, and he stayed with her and would, uh, you know, help her if she fainted. They ended up becoming closer, and around about March, uh, in the last year of the war, now the doctors, this is what I found most moving in my research, the doctors in this last year at Stanley were telling women, do not get pregnant. You're going to have anemia, and it's a very dangerous condition. Anyway, my mother went to the doctor in March 1945 and he said, Billy, I've got some terrible news for you. You're pregnant. And she jumped up, hooray! You know, <laughs> never was a child more wanted. And that was you. And that was me, yes. Ian Gill there talking about the life of his mother against the tumultuous backdrop of the Sino-Japanese War. His book, Searching for Billy, is published by Blacksmith Books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.